thanks so much for inviting me. I was really pleased um, when Stanley and Caroline invited me back and the timing of it has worked out quite well. As Dan said, I had my, my Viva on Tuesday. So pleased to be here with all of you today. Um, I'm gonna be talking today about my doctoral thesis research, um, which was talking about South Africa's sugar sweetened beverage tax, but in the con context of their wider NCDs and HIV burden and contextual setting, which I'll get to. So Stanley mentioned, I did the MPhil in medical anthropology way back in 2009. Um, and since then I've worked in the uh, public health policy research development and advocacy space. Um, and that's almost been entirely within the realm of NCD prevention. So high level um, population level policies. Um, I'm currently the policy lead at a population health consulting firm called Health Lumen. And I started the DRPH program, so the Doctor of Public Health program at LSHGM uh, way back in 2015. Please, pleased to be nearly done with that. Um, so for my talk um, today, I'll go through some of the rationale and contextual background to my study, briefly go over my what my aims and objectives were, review my methodology and, and theoretical framework, and then go into my results and the policy reflection that I conducted around talking with talking with people about sugar and lots of other things. Um, as many of you probably know, South Africa has one of the highest prevalences of obesity in Sub-Saharan Africa, um, and type 2 diabetes is now the second leading cause of death among adults, actually behind TB. And about two-thirds of women and a third of men in South Africa um, would be classified as overweight or, or obese based on their BMI. In April of 2018, um, South Africa implemented their health promotion levy on sugary beverages, which is a I don't actually go into the details of it, but it's an excise fixed rate tax on sugar content in beverages. And they stated at the time that their goal um, was for this to be one of the measures to help lower consumption of sugar sweetened beverages across the entire population. As you probably know, sugar sweetened beverage taxes and levies are supported as one of the WHO's best buy policy options for addressing um, non-communicable diseases worldwide. And sort of building on my context, which my, my title implied, at the same time, while while things like sugar sweetened beverage taxes have been rising up um, political agendas, particularly in low and middle income countries as of late, in that same time period, there have been increased calls for greater coordination um, between HIV and other areas of public and global health, um, particularly around research and policy and NCDs. So there, there were some explicit calls, um, particularly from the UNAIDS Lancet Commission and others, essentially saying that HIV needed to break out of its silo and work across across various other areas of population health. So with that said, um, currently 13% of the South African adult population is, is HIV positive, which is still a very high rate and still one of the highest rates in the world. And so as par part of while they've been dealing with rising rates of NCDs, particularly obesity and, and metabolic conditions, um, they've been dealing with this ongoing high rate of HIV. All of that has been going on during a nutrition and economic transition primarily since the end of apartheid in the early 1990s. And like with many other countries, um, this nutrition transition has led to um, an increase in food consumed away from the home and very high levels of sugar sweetened beverage consumption. Um, another thing to note with regards to the context, um, particularly with regards to, to the decades since the end of apartheid, South Africa has one of the highest rates of unemployment in the world um, and high a large gap in um, in income inequalities, and that's highly racialized within the population. Um, and I, I note about the geography of townships as well, um, which comes up a little bit throughout, and that's another legacy of apartheid. The main aim of my 
project was to explore grassroots understandings um, and perceptions of food choices, food access, and national policy within the context of a country facing a double burden of NCDs and HIV. And this really came about um, as a rather naive attempt, perhaps, to combine all of my interests into one place, um, but also thinking about the fact that lots of these high-level policy measures to date have mainly been implemented in high-income countries, although um, particularly since Mexico implemented their sugar tax in 2014, there's been a, a steep increase in the number of sugar sweetened beverage taxes and, and other po similar policies in low and middle income countries. But looking at the context of a country that was not only facing a, a burden of NCDs, but also something else and, and HIV and the South Africa tax all sort of came together quite nicely. Um, and, I, and as I'll talk throughout, um, there are various ways to look at the NCDs and HIV intersect. And I really honed in on the idea that it provided context, contextual setting to, to this policy, um, and less so around the actual um, sort of numbers and burden of the, of the two types of, of conditions. So within this broad aim, I wanted to investigate with young people in Ulitcha Town, which is a neighborhood in the Kailitcha Township of T Cape Town, their food choices and access to food, including the role of sugar in their diets, and examine what knowledge, if any, they had of the South African levy about 18 months after it was implemented, um, and explore what, if any, bearing the levy was having on their day-to-day -day lives and why. And I then placed those discussions with an examination of the levy within a wider health and policy discourse and environment and this NCD and HIV context, um, and critically reflected on the idea of the lived experience of attack of a policy rather against other evaluations and levies in the same time period. I should note so the uh, a DR, DRPH thesis is um, within the London School Program is only about a third of the degree requirement, so it's about half the size of a of a PhD thesis in practical terms. Um, so that really limited. I had to, I had to try and limit my scope um, quite a bit. So I conducted seven focus groups. Um, in September of 2019. Um, they were large focus groups, and I spoke to 71 people over the course of those groups. Uh, I attempted to keep them a bit smaller, but it, we were turning lots of people away, and they proved quite popular. And my research assistant and I decided that as long as people were staying engaged and everyone was discussing, we'd keep them at that size. And I spoke to the groups were compiled of 18 to 34 year olds living in Yulitsha town, Kailitsha. So I've noted that this, um, I've changed the name of the neighborhood um, to help um, with anonymity issues around my population. And Yulitsha simply means youth in Kosa, which is the primary language spoken within the township, followed by English. So I, my research assistant is a native Kosa speaker, um, and she co-facilitated the focus groups with me and then conducted the initial um, translations and transcriptions of the focus group recordings. All of the participants are Black South Africans. We're able to speak to about half women and half men. Some of the groups were just men, some were just women, some were co-ed. As I mentioned, South Africa has a very high rate of unemployment. About two-thirds of the population were unemployed. The rest were mostly students or um, part or full-time employed. So the, the other third was split in half, um, basically between students and employed. And then one of the main reasons I chose this age group, in addition to sort of being interested in just talking to young people about about policy was the fact that 18 to 35 year olds is the it's an age group that is the largest consumers of sugar sweetened beverages within South Africa. So as I, I mentioned, I conducted a, a policy reflection. So this was using my qualitative data um, to look at policy and practice on the ground. 
Um, and it was very much a micro examination um, within a much larger macro context. And this was opposed to what could have been a more systematic policy analysis um, type of project um, that would have used a much more structured or rigid framework. Um, so within within policy analysis and studies, there, there are quite a few um, frameworks I could have used around um, the implementation process or stakeholder analysis, um, that kind of thing. But but given I wanted to talk to people on the ground, I wanted something that allowed a fair amount of flexibility. And that's also why I went um, with a fairly broad stroke critical theory approach for my analysis. Um, it did include some very loose elements of critical medical anthropology, particularly around uh, structural violence and various determinants of health, which I'll touch on later on. And I, I ended up really looking at this interplay between consumers and public policy and critically reflecting on how social structures and policy um, are intended to shape and improve people's lives. And I had a very semi, uh, not purely iterative, but a, a semi-iterative process of data collection and analysis. So I started um, analyzing the focus group transcripts while I was still in South Africa. So by they, the, the early focus groups were informing the later focus group discussions. So I've included here just, excuse me, just as a reference point, the uh, sort of general understanding of how sugar sweetened beverage taxes are meant to work. So I realize that I've been working on this for over a decade, on these taxes for over a decade. So I realize that some people don't always know what, how they work or how they're meant to work. Um, so this is just a flow chart of, of the sort of main intentions of implementing a sugar sweetened beverage tax. Um, so one is to encourage reformulation, the other two in the middle, which I'll come to in a moment, um, and then the final is generating revenue that's often earmarked. So South Africa um, has earmarked revenue um, for general health promotion. But I was really, within my critical reflection, was really looking at the two middle elements of this mechanism. So the idea that you, if you raise the price of a product, it changes purchasing, um, in theory, lower, lower, lowers the amount of purchasing, and therefore lowers consumption, and that in theory, has a knock-on effect to BMI, NCD risk development, um, and then also this idea that these measures raise public awareness, and that also then has an impact, a knock-on effect to purchasing and consumption. Following the focus groups, I um, conducted fairly basic um, content analysis, uh, content analysis of my data, um, and I came to five overarching themes that came out of our discussions. And I'll go through each of them in turn. And I, um, as I was reading through these and going, oh, well, I didn't, this quote doesn't capture that. And so it is really just an over, overview of the, of the main themes that we, that we got from our discussions. So the first main theme was uh, around life in the neighborhood, in the township, um, and what key things people, the young people were telling us. And right from the start, unemployment and the high levels of unemployment um, were almost always the first thing that a group would tell us. Um, every group mentioned unemployment in multiple ways, um, and lots of that came back to um, limited budgets and, and what people have access to, which I, I'll discuss a bit more in, in a moment. And linked with this, the idea of linked with these high levels of unemployment, um, lots of people talked about levels of crime and feeling unsafe in the neighborhood and how that provided quite a bit of anxiety around day-to-day -day life um, and just going out and, and being. Um, and that anxiety was also coupled with anxiety around the presence of 
but I've tagged her as foreigners. Um, so while I was in South Africa at the time, um, there were very heightened levels of xenophobia towards, um, across the entire country towards non-South African black nationals. And there were very violent riots in both Johannesburg and Cape Town while I was there. So it was something that was very much on the front of every people, everyone's minds. And it came um, up in our discussions because I was told that all of the tuck and informal shops within the neighborhood um, were run by um, quote unquote Somalians, which seemed to be the term coined for anyone who wasn't South African. And that anxiety um, played out in that the young people felt that unfortunately those were the, or unfortunately for them, those shops were the only places they could afford to buy certain products because they were less expensive at those shops than at the big supermarket or more regulated stores. Um, but they didn't trust where the products were coming from and found it frustrating that those shops changed their prices on a regular basis. So these overarching issues around stress and anxiety um, and low income uh, played out throughout our discussions. The next overarching theme that came out of our discussions was around the general health context within Lucha Town. So I've broken these down into um, chronic diseases and I've used chronic diseases more broadly than NCDs um, for a number of reasons, um, partly because NCDs is, is a very useful catch, well, a very useful for, for from a policy context, but doesn't necessarily capture the more nuanced areas around living with a condition for a long period of time. Um, and so, so while this quote talks directly about diabetes, the there were, were discussions around sort of long-term health more broadly. It, it was clear that diabetes, cancer, um, heart disease were major issues within the community, within the neighborhood. And these young people were seeing their parents in aunts and uncles with these conditions, taking them to the clinic um, and things like that. Um, and as this quote points to, there was already a fair amount of knowledge around the links between diet and these long-term conditions. In addition to chronic diseases, um, HIV was the other um, sort of large, large health, specific health item that came up in our discussions. Um, but it was quite interesting because as this quote says, um, you can live a long time with if you have HIV, you can't live long when you've got diabetes. And that came up several, multiple times in that, which I come back to in my discussion, that HIV was now sort of the old manageable, it's just, you just have it. Whereas things like diabetes um, were being felt very acutely within the community um, and they were the new the new thing. And then finally, there there were various discussions around sort of general health knowledge and I've, I've put in a quote here that links um, directly to sugar and sugar's impact on the diet. Just, just to give an example that while there was knowledge around sugar from a nutritional perspective, there was also a fair amount around sugar and energy more broadly, sugar and acidity. And so it wasn't just the nutritional value of what people were eating and, and its impact on your health, but these other areas um, that might impact health. So then the third overarching theme is this idea around um, what people were choosing to eat in the neighborhood. And that broke down into preferences. Um, and most of that came back to people liking things that taste nice. We just eat what's nice, what you feel is nice for the tongue, you know, not for our health, but for the tongue. 
and that was across the board. So quite a lot around how there's a fair amount of meat consumption because people like the taste of meat, very low levels of um, fruit and vegetable consumption. This this idea of preference led specifically um, to a sub, sub-theme of, of data around fizzy sugary drinks, which was obviously part of what I was wanting to look at anyways. And by far, if you asked, um, asked these young people what they would choose to drink, it was a sugary fizzy drink. Um, so Twiza and Jive are local South African brands. Fusion is uh, a concentrated juice. It's like squash, Coke, which I come back to later, and sweet water, for example, which is literally just what apparently just adding sugar to water, but also adding sugar to tea and coffee and very low levels of water consumption, which I speak to on the next slide. And again, like with health, there were some general discussions around the knowledge people had related to their food preferences. And again, that touches on not just the nutritional element of their food, but also this idea around safety. So a lot around um, food hygiene and safety and that lots of that linked back also to the anxiety around where their food was coming from and where they were able to um, access food. And access um, to food was the fourth um, overarching theme that came out of our discussions. And that broke down into the cost. So cost as a barrier um, or, or not to food. But it was clear that people felt that what they thought of as being healthy food options tended to be expensive and they were on very limited budgets and they had to pay quite a lot of attention to, to what they ate. So as, as mentioned, limited budgets, um, having to, to often choose at the beginning of the month what you're going to buy with your paycheck or your government grant. So a fair number of my participants were parents and so we're receiving uh, grants from the South African government for their children, but that money had to go towards feeding their children in addition to feeding the rest of the household. So they were making very distinct decisions around what they were buying and what they were able to eat based on the cost. Um, and they were <clears throat> very acutely aware of the cost of food and any fluctuations in the cost of food. But then there was also linked to that is the the physical availability of food. You know, the idea that you could choose something nicer, but it would be small. Um, but to feed your whole family, you need to buy um, what what will feed everyone for the whole month and what you can afford. Um, and there were other discussions around regional availability. So lots of lots of comments around well, the Eastern Cape over you know near Durban um, has much better fruits and vegetable selection than the Western Cape and things like that um, and then that played in into to water so as I'm sure you're aware the South Africa and, and the Western Cape in particular has been going through um, periods of, of very extreme drought in the last few years and while there's a fair amount around water conservation everyone in the township in theory has access to safe drinking water at home, but it was seen as not something that people would choose to drink um, and that their water in the township was dirty water compared to the water you would get um, in say Cape Town city center. And water actually came up multiple times. Um, and so it could have fit within any of the, any of the larger parent themes. And finally, with regards to access was sugar itself, but then sugar and fizzy drinks as well. As I mentioned before, Coke, explicitly was a drink of choice and it came up again and again as being the the drink if you could figure out a way to get it and as this quote points to 
lots of people figured out ways to drink Coke without necessarily um, buying it or um, working around the increase in price. So I'll, I'll mention on the next slide that, that there was an awareness around the change in price, but just to say that the young people were shifting their purchasing of sugar-sweetened beverages and sugary products, but not necessarily their levels of consumption. So the final uh, main theme that came out of our focus groups was um, what I've, I coined sort of scope for policy change. So really thinking about what possibility there was for policy to have any impact day to day or, or if there should be or would be. So within that, um, there were there were explicit discussions about the South Africa levy. It didn't come as much surprise given conversations with um, colleagues in Cape Town ahead of time um, and, and in my pre-research that not very many people actually knew um, that the levy existed. So I, as I said, I was there 18 months after it had come into effect. So they didn't really know or said they didn't know that the tax existed, but they had noticed a change in price. And then there were just, so on top of that, there were discussions about why the government might have implemented the tax in the first place, if they thought it would work. As, as that middle quote points to, um, there was a fairly sophisticated um, knowledge about why the government would, so acknowledgement that people are probably consuming too much sugar, this was a way to try and um, get them to, to, to lower their consumption of sugary drinks. Um, it was likened to alcohol taxation, um, which seemed to have mixed mixed reviews among my group. But then also this idea that actually the tax was unfair, as that last quote points to, um, and people felt that it really disadvantaged what they referred to as lower class, but lower income pockets of the population, noting that even with the price of Coke going up to 30 rand. And this is this is probably, they were probably thinking it was about a two liter bottle. Um, so just as a comparison, Twiza, which is a, a South African um, soda brand, uh, would probably only be about 13, 15 rand in comparison. So it's, about, it's usually about half the price, even with the tax. So starting from a very low price point, but but noting that, you know, the tax wouldn't have a, a immediate impact on middle and upper income pockets of the population um, and that they would be able to afford it and it wouldn't really affect them. Finally, within that um, sort of scope for policy change within the neighborhood, we moved on from the tax specifically and we, we talked about other things the government could do um, or what other things people would like the government to do to help them or to impact their health. And lots of people wanted the government to subsidize healthy foods. Um, so people noted, as I've said, that fruits and vegetables are very expensive and could only be bought in bulk. And the one things that could be bought in bulk weren't necessarily very palatable or didn't seem to be deemed as being palatable. But there seemed to be a desire to want to consume more fruits and vegetables if they could figure out a way to afford them. Once again, employment and the idea of creating jobs came up again and again. So a recognition of some of these broader determinants around um, health and food access. This quote talks to this young man who, who the quote in the middle, when he says this one that could solve both our problems, he was discussing food insecurity and crime. Um, so saying that, you know, if the government could just figure out a way to give us jobs, several things would be, would be solved. And then that final point around them not seeing the government. So 
that came up multiple times about, well, actually, we just need to see them here. They need to come. They need to talk to us. Um, and then they'd see what they needed to do to help us. So that was a very broad, broad overview of the, the major themes that came out of our focus group discussions. And that led into this sort of broad policy reflection, which I split into, into two separate parts. So one was looking more explicitly at uh, the design of sugar-sweetened beverage taxes and these other evaluations of the South African levy to date. And the second, which I'll come on to in a moment, was putting that reflect this first part of the reflection into a broader context and looking at policy within, within everyday life. Fiscal policies in general are designed to improve uh, population health as a whole. They are not meant to shift individual neighborhoods. Um, they're meant to shift an entire population and usually as part of a measure of packages and not on their own. It's well documented that fiscal policies like the South African levy are economically regressive. So that means that they disproportionately impact lower income groups in that a larger portion of their budget goes towards the products that are being taxed, with the counter argument being that those are the sectors of the population that are disproportionately burdened by NCDs, in particular metabolic conditions, and therefore long-term, in theory, will have biggest health gains from these measures. Um, but as, as my results point to, um, the young people in each of the town were experiencing very acute, immediate economic impact from the levy. And therefore, it, it was having an impact on them day to day. Um, and and I, I will talk about sort of the timing of my study and sort of the long term timing of, of policies a little bit later. So thinking about those two parts of the taxation mechanism, which I talked about at the beginning. So the idea that sugar sweetened beverage taxes are meant to shift purchasing and consumption. So as I noted through through various elements of my results, the young people were shifting how they were spending their money. Um, so they were shifting to often lower cost products or to consuming Coke in particular without having to buy it. But they weren't necessarily, like with Coke, shifting away from lower sugar options. So while the tax was shifting purchasing um, in this immediate t period after its implementation or early t period after its implementation, it was not in this population was not shifting sugar consumption itself. Um, and then the other the other element of the taxation system around the idea that taxes or the awareness of taxes um, impact general public awareness. So as I noted, uh, well, this this idea of public awareness can be broken broken down a number of ways. And as I noted, there were low levels of awareness within the neighborhood among these young people of the levy in the first place, but the young people in Utahtown really already knew that sugar and sugary drinks aren't good for them um, and their health. And so th if the public awareness campaigns had reached them, it's it's hard to say whether or not um, they would have necessarily had the intended impact. So thinking about my results and, and how the policy is designed, but looking at other assessments and evaluations of the levy to date. So noting that I was conducting my field work less than two years after it had been implemented and writing up the following year and a half. Policies like this often have a very long lead time and lifespan and take a long time for there to be results. Um, so I looked at both 
evaluations and assessments levy pre and post implementation. Some of the things that I found were that uh, to date, there have been no other evaluations that focused exclusively on either low income groups um, or young people. So a number of studies did include small numbers of low income groups, but not exclusively. Most of the studies, um, which is often the case with, with fiscal policy measures like this, work are quantitatively based studies. So model, projective modeling studies, economic impact assessments, et cetera. And those studies had almost no alignment, both, both pre and post to my findings. One other study, which has been conducted to date using qualitative methods, was conducted prior to its implementation in Sweto, which is in Johannesburg. And it did present some very similar results, particularly with regards to understandings, exposures, um, and beliefs around health, sugary beverages, and the potential impact of the RSA levy. So I will speak a bit more to this idea of the benefit, hopefully the benefit of qualitative methods in looking at policy at, at the end. That was the first part of this policy reflection I conducted. And, and the second part was taking how my results fit in um, with the tax mechanism and the other assessments, and then placing it within this context of, um, of everyday life within this particular neighborhood, in this particular township, and some of the main areas and issues that came out of that. So as I mentioned right at the beginning um, and came out in those early themes for my results, there were widespread issues around trust and safety, and this was linked to the high levels of unemployment, the stress and anxiety from poverty and crime, um, and the lack of trust in the sources of food that the people I was speaking to could afford. And I should note that the young people I spoke to were generally living in one of three types of household settings. So they were either still in their family home, so large, larger multi-generational homes, um, where they were not the ones making decisions about food purchasing and budgeting, or they had moved out and had their own, they were young parents um, or young single mothers and were the sort of breadwinner, as it were, either through benefits or through employment and were making the budgetary choices. Um, or the third was they were living out on their own um, with a friend or a family member in very informal housing on the very outskirts of the township. Um, the neighborhood I was in was on the edge of the township. And, and those young people in particular were on very, very limited budgets. Most of them were unemployed. So it became very clear that the site, that unemployment and, and income inequalities and poverty um, were really are very strong overarching structural barriers and drivers within this community, and that they are limiting any impact that the levy, the South African levy might have on purchasing and consumption changes. And lots of that is linked, as I mentioned at the beginning, to these legacies of apartheid, in particular, the wide gaps and racialized income inequality within South Africa, which is very well documented, but also around life and geography within the townships, which unfortunately I haven't had much time to touch on here, but it's really a very interesting element and in the idea that the townships since the end of apartheid have shifted away from settlements into communities themselves, but but with that has come all of these other issues, particularly around income and income inequality and food insecurity. And I mentioned geography in that most of the jobs within Greater Cape Town are not in the townships. Um, so quite a lot of effort has to be to get a job and to keep a job. You have to put quite a lot of effort into getting out of the township to find the job and then 
getting to said job every day. Um, and that's an, an added an added barrier. And then finally, um, within food choices and food access was the pervasiveness um, of Coke and brand loyalty. So this brand loyalty built up during apartheid um, and in the decades since. Um, and there, as touched on very briefly in my results, the idea that, well, Coke, Coke is the, the beverage of choice, which is has been documented documented elsewhere in the world, and you know the, the picture I've provided was was in Ulitcha Town, but it's not an unusual image. The red, the Coke red, and the and the white text is very pervasive, and 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 you just can't really escape Coke, even if even if you wanted to. And then finally, within the policy reflection, was how my results um, linked back to this these the broader context of HIV. NCDs and health. And it really came through in that South Africa had a very centralized response to HIV and it shaped their health context for the last almost 40 years. And therefore, um, there is an expectation that the government should be providing health, which I, I touch on in just a moment. As in, the, I had a very acute example that someone said, well, they gave us, you know, they give us condoms. Why can't they give us fruits and vegetables? But also this was this context was linked to, as I mentioned, this idea that HIV is now sort of the old kid on the block and it's just there. And but NCDs are new and acute and pressing and people are seeing them day to day. But actually the levy is not actually having it's currently not having an impact on these young people day to day. I note that it is from a health outcomes um, perspective, it's way too soon to know, and my study was never intended to look to look at that element of it, but more to look at, well, there's this national policy, this is what it's supposed to be doing, what are these factors that it sits within? And I just note COVID-19 in particular, because for any ongoing research and thinking about policies like the RSA levy going forward, diabetes in particular um, has been a significant co comorbidity with COVID-19 in South Africa. And while uh, some people see it as an opportunity to um, increase diabetes screening by getting people when people come in for their COVID tests, there's also concern that um, COVID is, uh, is going to exacerbate, as we've already seen in South Africa and elsewhere, levels of unemployment and income inequality. And that will just um, increase some of these, these broader determinants of health. And then finally, I came back to this idea of giving health and the idea that thinking about whether or not large social structures shape health um, and using um, what I've done here as an sort of individual and community experience as a metric for measuring the impact of policy. And as I've mentioned, we came back again and again to this idea that the government, from these results, that this idea that the government should be giving health. So while it's not policy itself is not shaping health yet in this community because of these larger structural barriers that I've mentioned throughout. There was the idea that, well, well they, could, they could, the government could be helping us and they could be giving us health um, very much within this legacy of HIV within South Africa. A very rough overview of it all, but some of the limitations to note, so the, the size and time constraints of the study. So I had limited time both in South Africa, but limited time to, to complete the study as a whole. Um, as I said, it's it's a very small project in relation to a, sort of a larger PhD study or, or even a larger study. There were issues around <clears throat> the safety and practicality of actually conducting the focus group. So I 
could only conduct the focus groups during the day. Um, they were conducted during the week. So that um, points to one reason probably why I had a slightly higher number of unemployed participants in the general population. But Kailicha as a whole, the township as a whole, has one of um, the highest unemployment rates um, within the whole country. Obviously, I was working in translation, which brings its own potential challenges and pitfalls. Um, my research assistant was fantastic, but there are always going to be some things that get lost in, in translation. And then this complexity around the HIV NCD intersect. So I mentioned at the beginning that I really honed in on the contextual element of this intersect. Um, but that's really just one part. And my study really just scratches the surface of what that intersect might mean for breaking down those silos and policy development in the future. And then finally, as I, I also mentioned, the timing of my study. So the period with which I was conducting my focus groups was in policy terms was really not that long after the policy had come into effect. So in relation to other evaluations, often you have a two-year a two-year out evaluation, you have a five-year out evaluation, things like that. Um, so I recognize that the timing of my study with regards to sort of larger evaluations of the levy make it hard to compare, but from a acute micro-examination, um, the timing worked quite well for me. So finally, just some sort of concluding thoughts on, on the study as a whole. As I noted, the South African levy and policies like it are designed to shift whole populations. And at the time, the levy was having an acute regressive impact on the young people of Town, and, and thinking about the fact that these low-income communities may not have been targeted in public awareness campaigns. For the young people I spoke to, it's very clear that the levy sits on top of larger structural and health barriers, which have grown out of the legacy of apartheid, including unemployment, food access, and that geography of townships that I mentioned. The young people in Town have a very sophisticated understanding of the role of sugar in their diets and broader determinants of health. I was blown away really by a them not fixating on the nutrition element of sugar and but these the broader elements of sugar within their diets and their lives, but also they the fact that they kept coming back to unemployment and they knew that if they had jobs, they might things might be different. I note that the age of my participants um, is very specific um, and that one of the things to note with relation to the lived experience of the policy is that they've lived within a community that's been physically and socially shaped by both the legacy of apartheid and the legacy of HIV. So they've always lived in a community that's been affected by HIV and that almost certainly has an impact on how they are experiencing the policy day to day. This was a an examination of a, of a very popular contemporary policy measure um, designed, as I've said, to address health inequalities long-term, but not the intended, but it's not having the intended impact um, within the nuances of day-to-day of -day life for this population. So thank you very much. Thanking my various supervisors and, and my team in South Africa. Yeah, looking forward to some questions.